Hello, all you happening hedgehogs. Welcome back to another episode of A Little Greener. I'm one of your hosts, Casey. And I'm Sarah, and we're glad to have you back for another week. Thanks for joining us again. Casey, how are you doing this week? I am doing pretty well. Uh, if you're a first time listening to our podcast, this is a podcast about conservation, sustainability, and nature. And I don't know when people are jumping in. So I always feel like we should, we should talk about that. We cover all <laughs> sorts of different topics. I'm pretty good. I sprained my finger, as you know, this week. And so Sad. that has been just like this womp womp in the middle of basically everything I want to do is like, oh, you want to tape an email? Well, that's sorry about 10 it. times harder now. <laughs> so so my world is currently adapting to having one less finger available. Uh, so how about you, Sarah? Um, I'm good. I got my second shot this week. So congratulations! I'm, I'm well on my way to being fully vaccinated. So um, I'm very excited about that. I also, on the nature topic, I got plants. Did I tell you that? Casey? No, I got them actually the other week, but I, I bought some native plants. I got uh, Sullivan's milkweed. And then I yeah. got purple coneflower and yellow coneflower. I may have already killed the milkweed. No. There. <laughs> because they were smaller than I thought they were going to be. Like I ordered them from an online plant sale and then I, you know, I went to go pick them up. And so I, I didn't really know what to expect. I'd never done it before, but they were just like little tiny and I don't have any pots. So I was just like, well, I'm just going to put them in the ground and I put them in the ground and I haven't gone out and checked on them in a couple of days. It's also gotten pretty chilly here overnight. Have you watered them? I have. Okay. Okay. And I mean, it was, it was very wet when I planted them as well. So I don't know. Um, (laughs) but at the coneflower, I decided to just not plant yet. So they're still in their little boxes because of the overnight temperatures. So hopefully tomorrow afternoon, I will put those actually in the ground and then just cross my fingers. Yeah. Hopefully well, it'll be okay. Hopefully, I mean, those are perennials, so they should be a little right. bit more hardy. In this yeah, zone. that's, that's what I wanted. Yeah. I did, did that purposefully because I don't know what I'm doing clearly, but I'm trying, right? I'm proud of you. I'm very Thanks. proud of you. <laughs> I know yard work not your favorite man and I had to pull some weeds to clear spots for these things and I'm pretty sure I pulled the muscle in the process oh no see here's that's the thing about getting outside guys is Sarah (laughs) got outside she did her outside time she did some physical exercise make sure you stretch for your garden she planted pollinators she's hitting checking all the boxes maybe killing plants it's fine I'm trying we're trying to have a live plant that's the, <laughs> that's what counts. <laughs> so, uh, with all of that, Casey, have you done our action yet from last week? We had our, our take, take home action. Yeah. For those of you who may, who maybe haven't listened to last week's episode was Casey had kind of given us this stoplight system for posting pictures of, of animals in particular primates on social media and kind of a, a red light, yellow light, green light of things to not post to be careful of context and to go ahead and post freely. And so she had a couple of, of kind of challenges or take home actions related to that. Yeah. I, so for me personally, I have 
as of the recording of this episode, which to be fair is only a couple of days after we've released right. the last episode. So I'm still thinking about some other things I want to post, but I have, I tried to up our game on social media and add some extra pictures. And honestly, like I had to make sure I was very specific in getting green light photos on the particular creation uh, website that I was using. Cause a lot of those things looked like, um, for example, I was going to post pygmy marmoset as one of them Mm. to show people what like a quote unquote finger monkey is. But so many of those pictures, even though they were like really gorgeous, clear pictures looked like the pygmy marmoset was a pet pygmy marmoset, like it was on someone's hand. So, um, so I did some selection that way and I have shared, uh, our episode with some of that social media on my personal page, but I think I'll be sharing some more primate things just because I love them too. Yeah. What what about you, Sarah? Uh, I did half of that because you you put those (laughs) pictures together and I also shared them. So, uh, so that's about it. Um, but yes, I, I'm going to be on the lookout as well to to see what green light things I can share and I'm hoping I'll be able to turn up some white cheek gibbon audio for us as well yes what you should know Sarah is as of right at this moment uh I did a poll on whether or not lorises looked like aliens or teddy bears and you are winning I'm winning (laughs) you're winning people say they look more like like aliens than than uh teddy bears I mean they're they're furry aliens for sure I'm not saying they're not cute but they just creep me out (laughs) they're not as creepy as tarsiers are Oh yeah. No, Tarsiers. There's some, we're going to talk about, we've been uh, talking about maybe adding a little bit of episodes with some just animal profiles and end up some very weird and wonderful things going on in the animal kingdom, but them and then Kalugos, which are like a flying lemur squirrel-ish sort of looking Yeah. I didn't even know about those. Oh man. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about those eventually. I'm so thankful for the Little Greener podcast listeners <laughs> for agreeing with me that Slowlorises <laughs> look like aliens. Yeah. I'm not alone in yes. being slightly creeped out by them. <laughs> That's fair. Hey, Sarah, we have yes. a listener email. This week, <laughs> we do. We? Thank you for getting me back on track. We, <laughs> we do have a listener email from one of our listeners who is also a wonderful friend of ours, Kristen. And Kristen actually works at one of our local soil and water conservation district offices. And so she sent us an email after listening to our episode on the water cycle and water conservation to share some, some information about that as a resource for people, which is something that we didn't talk about. And I I honestly hadn't really thought about, but if you are a listener uh, here in Indiana with us, uh, Kristen shared with us that every single county in Indiana has one of these soil and water conservation district offices that are a great resource for folks. If you need someone to talk to or need some resources about conservation or use of our natural resources, they're a great organization that you can reach out to. And there's also, so there's the National Association of Conservation Districts. So that's a nationwide organization. So even if you're outside of the state of Indiana here in the United States, every state should have some sort of soil and water conservation district representation. Um, And there's another organization called the National Resources Conservation Service 
There's a lot of, lot of names and acronyms that works very closely with soil and water conservation districts. Um, and so those are both kind of great organizations that you should be able to reach out to no matter where you live in the United States, at least if you're listening in this country. So thanks, Kristen, for listening and for sharing those resources and those ideas uh, as places for people to reach out to. We appreciate that. Yeah. And thank you for all the work that you do for conservation yes, too. Absolutely. Um, I think sometimes like this wasn't something I knew really existed until Kristen got this job. And so it's always important to think about all the different ways that we can impact conservation on a local level too. And so it's cool that those resources exist. Yep. And we were really excited, Kristen, to hear from you too. So thanks for the email. And if you listening have any other, whether that's information for us or suggestions for us or feedback for us, you can also reach out to us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. So Casey, now that we've uh, we've talked a little bit about our, our weeks, our homework, shared some listener updates. My question for you for this week is what are your favorite sounds? Do you have any favorite sounds? And also on the flip side, what are some sounds that get on your nerves? Hmm. Ah, that's a good question. I the, the one, the sound that gets on my nerves is the first thing that popped into my mind. And that is the sound of a, like, you know, when you use a pencil eraser, like a traditional. Oh yes. Yeah. And you hit the metal against your desk. You can feel it, right? Yes. It makes my teeth hurt. That's like my least favorite sound in the world. I don't like terrible. I know. I'm so sorry, but you asked. So here we go. Oh, (laughs) So uh, I haven't so, thought about that sound in so long because we don't use right. pencils much anymore. Oh. Yeah. Congratulations, kids of today with your mm-hmm. fancy computer typing. But uh, yeah, so I don't like that at all. Nope. <laughs> um, favorite sounds I like. Um, the first thing that popped to my mind was like a nice like violin, like mm. being played well, like a nice strings instrument. I like the kind of sound of birds singing like early in the morning, but not so early. In the morning. <laughs> They're still kind of soft. Um, and the sound of like the ocean waves. That's another one I really yeah. like. So the peaceful nature sounds. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? What are your favorite and least favorite sounds? Well, I feel like similarly, the, the ones that drive me nuts are the things that jump to mind first. And I have some weird sounds. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to sound sometimes. So there are some very normal things that are, can be very annoying to me sometimes. People tapping their fingernails can't stand it. And people do it all the time without thinking about it. So I've learned to just like, rain it in but inside there's like a, a, a rage, a of rage. <laughs> building when people are, are tapping their fingernails and, and also whistling which is again a very like pleasant thing that people do when they're happy and I and not all the time like if somebody is like showing me how they can whistle or if they're you know specifically whistling a tune for a reason that's okay but people who will just like sit and work and like sort of whistle randomly. I hate it so much. And I really have to like focus myself to, to try to tune it out and not be angry at this person who is not doing anything wrong, but it's just a sound that drives me nuts. So I don't know why, um, but those sounds bother me. 
plenty of sounds that I love. You may have heard the sound of, of my cat meowing in the background just now. Um, I do love that, but cat purrs, I feel like. Yeah. I love the sound of a cat purr. It's very soothing, like fire crackling. I love the sound mm-hmm. of a good crackling fire. Um, I also thought about music, maybe very nerdy of me, but I was listening to Julie Andrews sing the other day, like a, an old video of her like singing live on a TV show. And I was just like, man, I could listen to her sing just all day long and never get tired of it. So plenty of lovely sounds out there. And today's episode is going to be all about sound. So we're going to be talking a lot about noise and how noise can impact us and how noise can impact animals and the environment. So stay tuned for that. Uh, But we're going to be back in just a minute with a review from Casey. All right, everyone, and we're back with the review segment for our episode. Today, I am reviewing a book because of a recommendation to me and a little bit for last week's episode, although it it wasn't quite as relevant as I was hoping it was going to be. I read Visions of Caliban on Chimpanzees and People. It's by Dale Peterson and Jane Goodall, and it is a book that was written in 1993, so it's a little bit on the older end, and it is an interesting book um, because it kind of has these musings on our relationship and all the different ways that we interact with chimpanzees and, and how like the ethics of that, which is definitely like down my alley. I like sort of wrestling with the ethics of different things. So it has a strange title visions of Caliban. It basically tries to frame chimpanzees within the character of Caliban from the Tempest. Uh, I have a strong feeling that Dale Peterson is an English major. As a (laughs) fellow English major myself, this feels like a thesis. And honestly, I've never read The Tempest before, despite being an English major. So I actually found that part of it a little bit distracting. I ended up skipping a little bit through the first chapter because that's where he was really trying to nail down that. Um, But really uh, what they're trying to wrestle with is this animal that is so genetically similar to us being our closest living relative and the ways that we both love and then degrade this animal through things like how we use them in an entertainment and within animal testing and how animals ended up being exported from Western Africa. And so some of the stuff I found extremely, extremely interesting. Um, there is a chapter that is talking about how people do catch chimpanzees, or at least at the time we're catching chimpanzees to export to the United States and how some of the population numbers were being taken. There's an interesting chapter about the use of orangutans in the entertainment industry. That was uh, really interesting for me personally. Um, But it's also a little bit of a weird co-written in that like, it's not coming from a singular voice. Jane Goodall also wrote this book and there's portions of it that are italicized that are her writing. And it kind of feels a little cobbled together in that way I kind of wish there was a little bit more balance and like that these voices were a little bit more in conversation with each other rather than both kind of trying to be the same book I don't know it it was interesting because it's written definitely a little bit different than something else I uh have to say you have to be a pretty big 
animal nerd, I feel like, to enjoy certain parts of it. But even if you're not, some of the stuff towards the end can be really interesting talking about, especially chimpanzees in how they were used at the time. This is the early 1990s in medical testing and talking about what the standards were. And especially because this was a time where a lot of people were testing things on uh, chimpanzees related to AIDS and talking about how chimpanzees are an imperfect analog to humans for this particular disease. They will get the disease, but they don't typically show the outward signs that humans do. And so using them in this testing process is sort of an imperfect way to be able to develop medicine. So this is a very rambling way to say that this is a book, I think for animal nerds, it's a book for someone who's super interested in the ethics, but also this book was sort of written. That was one of the early books written about the ethics. And maybe now 27 years later, 28 years later, this is something that we feel a little bit more developed on. And maybe this is a nice piece of history for you to read. So that is sort of my review for the week. It's I, I would give it maybe a three out of five if I had read it when it came, came out. <laughs> if I wasn't an infant, I think that maybe I would have given it a much higher score because it would have been a little more revolutionary. But as of today, it's a little bit more of a piece of history. And, and for someone who's really interested in chimps. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. Thank you, Casey. I never had never heard of it before. So I appreciate your thoughts and your views and maybe I'll get it from the library. <laughs> you can borrow it from me. There, there you, you go. go. <laughs> Instead of looking to purchase it from myself, but we appreciate that. Thanks for the review and we'll be back in just a minute with our main discussion. Welcome back, everyone. And today, like we said, is going to be all about noise and the noise we make and what kind of impact that can have on the environment around us. So this this concept of of noise pollution is, I'm guessing, probably not one that most of us think about too often. I know that I really didn't until recent years. I actually had an experience where I was out walking in a local park and the entire time I was walking, I just kept, I kept hearing this like high-pitched metallic kind of shrieking noise, for lack of a better word. And I took a video of it as I was walking and I posted about it on social media. And I was like, man, you know, I went to get away in this kind of natural space and it was beautiful, but I kept hearing this noise. Um, I actually have a cousin who commented on the video and was like, is, is there a train yard nearby? Because that's what that sounds like to me. And I looked it up and sure enough, right behind this nature preserve area where I was walking, there was a train yard. So that was the sound, the, the trains, I don't know, I don't even know if it's like the train stopping or switching tracks or, or what it is, but that was a sound associated with um, the train noise. And that was, you know, one of the things that kind of got me started thinking about how our, uh, what our, our human caused noise can do to the environment. So there is a, this concept of noise pollution, and this is defined by Britannica.com, super official, uh, as unwanted or excessive sound that can have deleterious effects on human health, wildlife, 
and environmental quality. So just a couple of notes as we talk about sound today, because this was all <laughs> new stuff to me. When we talk about sound, there's a couple of different ways that you might see it measured. And I had to kind of go back to high school science classes to, to remember some of this stuff. But we can talk about sound as amplitude. So amplitude is, is like the force of the sound wave. So if you see something measured in decibels, it's talking about the amplitude of the sound wave. This is what we would basically refer to as the loudness of the sound. We can also measure sound in terms of frequency, and that's the number of waves per second, basically. So if you're seeing uh, talk about sound measured in hertz, that's the frequency, and that's more related to pitch. So we, as humans and different animal species, we can only hear across a certain range frequency. So for example, you might think of, of animal species that might make sounds that could have a high decibel reading, but they're pitch or their frequency might be too high or low for us to hear, if that makes sense. So just keep those things in mind. We're talking about sound today and to kind of get us started and thinking about what those decibel levels that we might see actually mean. Casey, I've got a game for you to Go play. I, Casey's better at games than I am. <laughs> so I'm going to give her a game. I've got five different sounds, five different noises, and five different decibel levels. So I'm just going to have you match the decibel level to the sound. I don't think this is going to be super hard for you, but I'm going to read them off so our listeners know what you're looking at here, Casey. I've got them on the screen for Casey to see. So a normal conversation, sound of a lawnmower, cicadas, because we're all about the 17-year cicadas coming out here soon, a rainfall, the sound of a rainfall, and whispering. Those are the five sounds. So you've got choices, 85 decibels, 60 decibels, 40 decibels, 90 decibels, and 30 decibels are your choices. So we're going to go from the top, normal conversation, Casey. What, what decibel level do you think we're at for a normal conversation? For a normal conversation, I see, I feel like I'm cheating a little bit because I have that range in front of us yes. and I have to like compare it. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, you yeah. yeah, use your, yeah. Right. So obviously it's louder than a whisper. And so I'm going to go with 40 decibels. I'm not going to, I'm going to have you do them all and then I'm going to oh, tell you whether you're right. Okay. All right. Lawnmower is next on here and it is very loud and horrible. And so, so I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with 90. I feel like the cicadas are hiding up in here being like, now nah, we're the 90. You haven't heard 17 year cicadas in 17 years. <laughs> um, and then cicadas are next. I'm going to go with 85 and then rainfall at 60 and whispering at 30. You did very well. You I just, didn't win. You flip-flopped two of them, but okay. you did very well. Um, so it was, it's normal conversation is about 60 decibels okay. and the rainfall is about 40. Okay. 
It's a gentle range. Yeah, there's a range. (laughs) You have to take all of this with a grain of salt. There's a range for any of these things. They're related to how close you are to the sound as well. But but most decibel charts will put normal conversation at around 60 decibels and kind of a moderate rainfall at around 40, but everything else exactly uh, right. So the, the lawnmower about 90 decibels, cicadas here in the United States have been measured at around 85 decibels. Obviously there's a range with that too. And there's a range between species. I did, as I was looking this stuff up, I read about a cicada in Australia. Oh, the I think it was called the greengrocer cicada. I'm pretty sure that came in at like 120 decibels, which is amazing Um, because anything over 85 decibels can be harmful to humans over an extended period of time. And when you get up to 120 decibels, that's like above rock concert levels even. So it's pretty incredible. And obviously, again, your your distance to that sound matters as well. Um, just one more side note, I, I cannot stand math at all. So I'm just going to throw this out there quickly. Again, when you're thinking about these decibel readings, decibels is a logarithmic scale. So something that is 20 decibels is going to be 10 times stronger than something that's 10 decibels. Something that's 30 decibels is going to be 100 times stronger than something that's 10 decibels. So it's it's logarithmic. It's loud, right? Yeah, so it, it gets loud quick, basically. So when we're talking about human impacts of noise pollution, because loud noise obviously can Im- impact us as well, we probably think of hearing loss pretty commonly um, as as being one potential side effect to long-term loud noise exposure. But things, again, that I never thought about, loud noise exposure can lead to chronic stress in people, and that can lead to a whole host of other issues. So thinking about loss of sleep and building up to heart conditions long-term over time. So exposure to noise over long periods of time can have really deleterious effects for us. But Casey, how would noise exposure like this impact wildlife? Well, we're animals. So I assume that they would have similar physiological effects of having a lot of exposure to excess noise would also lead to stress and potentially problems with their hearing. Um, Also, like a lot of species depend on this uh, auditory form of communication and that's how they communicate with each other. And so if they're not able to do that properly, and I, the first thing that pops to mind is like whales and ships Mm -hmm. passing through, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, then that makes it hard for them to navigate, makes it hard for them to find food and stay in contact with other members of their, their group. And then also it could just like move them away from their homes, right? They want to get away from the sound of noise. And so if you've got like, I don't know, a car alarm going off all the time, maybe the mama birds won't want to build their nests nearby and they'll move elsewhere in the neighborhood as a small example. <laughs> so yeah, exactly what Casey said is, is exactly right. And the, this concept of chronic stress was not something that I had really considered previously when, when thinking about noise pollution effects. So I thought about the communication aspect of it and thinking about how species will use auditory cues to do things like find a mate or avoid predators uh, or even be able to hear a predator coming. But I hadn't really just 
thought of in the same way. A, a lot of loud noise can be kind of aggravating to us that it could be, it could just possibly cause stress as well as hearing issues for animals. So that was something that was very interesting to me. Um, but then, yeah, there are a lot of specific examples of different species that are potentially impacted by noise. And I do want to mention here, of course, like there is a natural soundscape everywhere, right? Like nature makes noise. We talked about the decibel level of a rainfall. Wind makes noise, thunderstorms make noise. So there are a lot of natural causes of noise out there that animals have to deal with. But what we're talking about in terms of noise pollution is that all of those anthropogenic sounds, so those human caused sounds, that can build up over a natural soundscape and can drown out natural sounds that are important or potentially mask those sounds as well. So sounds that are kind of at the same um, frequency of those sounds that animals need to communicate and can kind of mess with their ability to perceive those sounds. So that's what we're talking about. Um, and Casey also mentioned that animals might just choose to move away from sound, right? That would be a natural response if you've got a, a noisy area. We do that too, right? If you're looking at, you know, buying or renting a house or something like that, and maybe it backs right up to a train track or something, you know, that might be something that you would say, mm, you know, I think I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to look for something else, right? So you might look to move away from loud noises and animals can do that as well. The problem with that is if you're ending up with animals moving away permanently, then that's going to affect species richness in the area. It might affect predator-prey balance and could lead to some more long-term issues that way. So in thinking about what animals, what species this can really impact, there was a meta-analysis done a couple of years ago in 2019 from researchers at Queen's University Belfast that looked at 108 studies covering 109 different species that showed that noise pollution basically it had impacts across the board um, with different species. So they divided affected species into categories. So they looked at amphibians, arthropods, birds, mammals, fish, reptiles, and mollusks were how they divided those groups. And every one of those categories showed an impact from noise pollution, which was really interesting to me because again, there were, there are some groups there that were, that I would never probably would have thought about. Now, something to note about this meta-analysis in particular, it wasn't really specifying what those impacts were for each species or even whether they were positive or negative. It was just indicating that yes, there were differences seen as a result of noise pollution in these species. So I'm gonna look at some specific examples of those, just, I'm, I've just pulled a, a few examples from uh, different groups to look at. And the first one is birds. Casey, are, are you familiar at all with how birds may have been impacted or how they respond to noise pollution? Is that something you've come across at all before? Well, the one that, thing that I remember from the pandemic last year 
is people talking about are the birds louder than mm-hmm. they were before or are they singing differently because people in cities were starting to pick up on the bird song a little bit more and I don't I don't know that I even read those articles as much but I yeah. do remember when the pandemic was happening like how quiet everything seemed with less traffic around because I remember an ambulance or a fire truck nearby going off and like how much louder and eerier oh, everything yeah. felt um, so I assume that the birds are absolutely, uh, impacted by that kind of base level traffic j- daily activity of a city noise. Yeah, for sure. So this was one, one of the areas that I was sort of like passingly familiar with before doing this episode. And, and one of the things that I had remembered kind of hearing in passing is that birds, there are some species of birds that have changed their, the, the frequency so that the pitch of their bird song to be heard over the urban noise basically so birds that were living in busier areas had changed the the pitch of their song Um, and that has been documented in different species in particular I was finding a couple of of European species of birds so great tits and in common also called Eurasian blackbirds, um, have been documented at, at singing at a higher pitch in urban areas than their conspecifics that were found in more natural habitats. However, in kind of dig- digging into it a little more uh, for this episode, I did find um, there's a study from 2013 that that indicated that it's not actually that they're adjusting their pitch or their frequency for any specific reason other than that might just be their sort of vocal constraint because they are singing louder so they're having to sing at a higher amplitude in order to try to be heard over this urban noise and in order to sing louder they are kind of forced to sing at a higher pitch so I just thought that was an interesting aside because that's obviously something that we will do as well right if you're at a in a crowded place you're going to speak louder in order to be heard there's actually a scientific name for that who knew it's called the lombard effect or the cocktail party effect appropriately (laughs) um so birds and other species will do that as well the interesting thing about it um is i mentioned great tits as one of the the species that this has been documented in the females uh, at least in that species actually seem to prefer lower frequency so if they're having to kind of switch to this higher frequency of singing because they're singing louder to overcome this noise that can actually have a further reaching impact on their reproductive success but that's one way that birds might respond and or uh, be affected. And there was also a study here in the United States from a team of researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder, and they documented reduced hatching rates, smaller nestling body size, and skewed hormone levels for three species that they were monitoring, um, western bluebirds, mountain bluebirds, and ash-throated flycatchers. So what was interesting about that study is the stress hormones that they were looking at were actually reading low and they had lower stress hormones in areas where they were closer to the source of the noise pollution. I don't have the study pulled up in front of me. I can't remember what the specific source was that they were close to. Um, So that was something that sort of gave them pause for a moment. Um, But actually this is something that we see with with humans and other species as well in response to chronic 
stressors that your body can actually lower baseline levels of those stress hormones as a protection for you in response to chronic illness. So those lower hormone levels may have actually been a response to a chronic stress situation from that sound. So that was interesting as well. Um, there are also bird species who have been documented singing at different times of the day. So maybe earlier in the morning or even at night um, to be to have their songs heard uh, over noise pollution as well. So um, different ways that those bird species can adapt. But for a lot of bird species, those calls are really important to them to find a mate. And, and in terms of stress for those species as well, you know, there, there might be things like um, having that, having sound at that level kind of masks their ability to listen for threats as well. So that was one of the things um, they mentioned with, with some of those studies is that, you know, potentially there's stress from, you know, do I, do I leave my nest to go look for food? Is this a safe time to go? Uh, you know, those sorts of things could cause chronic stress for, for certain species, perhaps. Yeah, I think it's interesting that those stress hormones being low, I don't know because we always use stress horm hormones and studies to like figure out if an animal is stressed. Cause you can't ask them. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting that seeing them low, but still having those health impacts on the animal, the, the hatching rates, I think is, is really fascinating. I don't know all that much about biology, but that I think to me is something I wouldn't have necessarily thought of if they've like almost adapted in some ways and protected yeah. themselves to this, but it's still having this reproductive harm for them. Yeah. It's interesting to look at too. And yeah, I, I'm no expert on all of this either, but yeah, that it was a really interesting article to come, come across for sure. So next species I just pulled an example of was bats. So Casey mentioned whales earlier and how they'll communicate bats, not all species of bats, but a lot of bats will use echolocation, obviously. So they'll use these sound waves where they're, they're basically putting out sound and monitoring the sound that's coming back to them to kind of get a picture of their environment and to look for their food and all of that. So you can imagine how noise pollution could cause some interference for them. And there was a study looking at Mexican free-tailed bats in natural gas fields in New Mexico. And so they noticed that large numbers of these bats would avoid these natural gas wells that had these loud compressors. And I don't know anything about natural gas fields, <laughs> but apparently uh, some of them have loud compressors. Um, so they would avoid those spots. And they also adjusted the acoustic range of their calls when they were around that noise. So fascinating to me that they can do that. Um, another group that I had just not thought of, thought of at all in regards to noise pollution is fish. And many of us might not even think of fish as being able to hear. <laughs> Don't sleep on fish, guys. Once right? you do research into the fish world, you're like, whoa, it is. These things can sense things I never knew existed. Exactly. So they're, they're just, they're hearing in a different way than we would hear. So they don't have external ears like we do, but different species of fish can detect sound in a number of different ways. They'll have a multitude of different mechanisms depending on the species. I also learned that there are over 800 species of fish that have been documented producing sound. Yeah. Who would have thought? They um, talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> and 
again, different ways depending on the species. So it might be like from their teeth or their mouth hitting together, or they might be um, even like their bladders. They can like, like their swim bladders, they can like voluntarily, I can't, I can't remember, like that contract or through muscle contraction or something, they can produce um, some sort of sound from that or for from like rubbing parts of their fins they can do. So fascinating to learn about that. So um, so acoustic signals can be really important to, to fish basically. And some species of fish will even use the noise of like a coral reef to find home. So species of fish that will spawn in the open ocean. And then these fish as juveniles are gonna make their way back to the reef. They'll use auditory cues coming from the reef to find their home. And so I was reading some things about how like coral reef bleaching can impact their ability to find their home, but there's the potential that anthropogenic noise pollution could also disrupt their ability to make their way back to the reef. So that was really interesting. I just imagine Mr. Ray from Finding Nemo <laughs> being like, let's name a species, a species, a species. That's what they're listening for coming in from like the open ocean. One like, hundred yeah. percent. <laughs> There were, of, there, yeah, there were a lot of there um, were a lot of excellent Nemo puns in the titles of some of these articles and studies excellent. that I was reading as well. I think one of them was vexing Nemo or something like that. There you go. Okay. So some spe- some specific fish species that have been shown to have some response to to noise pollution. There were some laboratory results with two different species of goby that showed that they, so they use acoustic signaling during like courtship and some laboratory results showed reduced acoustic signaling in both species and reduced likelihood of spawning in one of the species, the painted goby, um, when they were played anthropogenic noises. So, uh, and then also clownfish, we, we got to talk about Nemo. Um, so clownfish, this is again, kind of in a lab setting, but clownfish that were played motorboat sounds had elevated stress hormones, were less likely to respond appropriately to an additional stressor meaning if a predator were to approach or something like that, they wouldn't necessarily respond appropriately. They were more likely to hide and were more aggressive to other fish than those that were played natural reef sounds. So so sound makes them angry and distracted. <laughs> that's what it sounds like. Basically, just like people. Yeah. And then Casey mentioned whales earlier. So Similar to bird species, some whale species, including those North Atlantic right whales that we've talked about in a previous episode, have been observed increasing the amplitude of their calls in response to anthropogenic noise. Um, And then also found several articles related to beaked whales that have been found stranded multiple times in conjunction with Navy sonar activity. So the current thought on that is so beaked whales are are deep diving whales and so there's been some thought and some evidence that these sonar activities will cause these whales to rise more quickly than normal 
and they basically get decompression sickness. It like, depends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, a, a similar type of thing, which is very interesting. So that, you know, the Navy does cooperate with researchers who are looking at this as well to communicate about different events so that we can, you know, hopefully um, find these incidences quickly and, and learn more about them as well. And then with the beaked whales too, there is also some evidence that um, these whales will change their foraging behavior in response to anthropogenic noise. So that's just like a scattering. That's just a handful of an example of examples across a, a, a few different species of ways that animals can respond to noise pollution. So that's how they respond. Casey, what would you say are some of the biggest sources of anthropogenic noise pollution? Where is the sound coming from? We mentioned kind of a few of them in passing in, in talking about those examples. The first thing that came to mind was airplanes. How yeah, absolutely. loud like a jet engine would be. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in a city, so I hear a lot of construction. So I find that pretty irritating personally. That makes me angry and distracted like a clownfish with a motorboat. <laughs> But probably a lot of transportation stuff, right? Like yeah. cars and traffic and all that kind of stuff, correct? Yeah. And this is so ubiquitous, right? We hear this across our daily lives all the time. It probably sinks into the background noise a lot of the time. But yeah, absolutely. Road traffic, rail traffic, and air traffic are are all big sources. And so research has shown that this 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 noise is even permeating. Yes, we live in a city, but this is even permeating across protected areas in the United States. So uh, there's been study that shows that this anthropogenic noise doubled background sound levels in about 63% of protected areas across the United States and had a tenfold or greater increase in about 21% of protected areas. So noise levels like this could cut hearing distance for a sound by as much as 50 to 90%, right? So something that you could hear at like 100 feet, you would have to be like, what is that, 10 to 50 feet? away. Yeah. That's not my thing guys, <laughs> uh, but that's, uh, uh, that's pretty prevalent, right. To, to have that level of, of sound pervading, uh, even across protected areas. And I, this also came up in that the book that I reviewed on a previous episode, leave only footprints. One of the chapters I mentioned was sound my cat really wants to make his voice heard today. He's <laughs> like, what noise pollution? I'm in. Um, so the, the chapter on sound in From Leave Only Footprints, there was a quote uh, where the author was talking to somebody from the National Parks Service. They have a natural sounds and night skies division that I'll mention a little bit later on as well. Um, but this gentleman, to, to kind of just illustrate the, the prevalence of, of this, that there are about three times as many aircraft in the sky today as there were just as recently as the 1970s. So um, this is growing quick. And he said his his quote from the book was that there's no place in the lower 48, so the, the lower 48 continental United States, where you can go and not hear an aircraft every day. And I just, just like never really thought about that. I mean, I absolutely do hear aircraft every day. Um, I'm not too terribly far from our international airport. 
but to just think about it, like there's nowhere that I could go here in the United States and not hear an aircraft every single day. So yes, road rail and air traffic uh, are, are, are a prevalent source of noise pollution. And then what about in the water, Casey? Well, ships, right? We think mm-hmm. about those really, really large shipping, sh- shipping ships, <laughs> shipping ships that ship things. Um, I think like the Suez Canal, like if you saw any of those images from the time that boat got stuck in the Suez Canal oh, yeah. and you saw it next to the, mm-hmm. like that little yeah. digger guy, yeah. um, and you're like, oh, actually that's like, I, I can't comprehend the scale yeah. that these ships operate at. That's what I would assume is like the biggest source of noise pollution. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of noise pollution from smaller boats as well, especially in recreational areas, but uh, in the deep ocean, like just one of those things come through. It's like the empire state building on its side, just yeah. like plowing through the ocean. That's going to make a lot of noise. Yeah. The size is amazing. I was watching actually a video earlier today about the shipping industry and they were loading like those shipping containers onto a vessel. And yeah, that was just another moment that gave me some awareness of the size of these things because they're loading these huge shipping containers. And then to see how many are stacked up and across, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, almost incomprehensible how large these things are. So yes, shipping vessels uh, is is a big source in the ocean. Um, and that's from the like propeller noise, propulsion machinery, and just the water kind of moving over the, the whole of the ship. Now, of course, that's not going to be the same everywhere throughout the ocean and it's going to be more focused across shipping lanes for sure. Um, but there's also things like seismic exploration. So in particular, this is looking for oil and and gas and i didn't know how this worked but apparently the the oil industry will have these like air gun arrays that are dragged behind a boat and fired off every 10 seconds to kind of get the way and again this is all like over my head to really understand how this works but basically these are putting out just an an acoustic blast every 10 seconds. Um, Sonar activity as well, both civilian and military sonar activity. Again, just this is emitting that acoustic energy and is receiving what's reflected or scattered back. Um, And then industrial activities as well. So things like offshore drilling or coastal power plants can be sources uh, along the coast. And then Casey, you mentioned uh, recreational boat use, um, things, you know, jet skis and things like that in those recreational areas can be a factor as well, but probably not as much of a, a major factor as some of those larger things. So given all of those sources, how do we respond to this? What do we do about this? It's it's something that I feel like can seem to be a little bit out of reach for a couple of reasons. Some of these things aren't going to go away. Like I'm not here saying, oh yeah, cars, planes, and trains, let's do away with them. That's absolutely not the point. They're here and we need them. Um, and, and they're very important. They're not going to go away. Um, and a lot of these other things are not necessarily going to be directly in our control either. Right. So I don't have anything to do with shipping vessels or military sonar activity. Um, so what, what is one person or what are, what are we as individuals supposed to do about this? So 
I guess kind of the bad news in this situation is there's not necessarily an, an overarching organization for any of this. The Environmental Protection Agency for a time had something. So under the Clean Air Act, there was an Office of Noise Abatement and Control um, that looked into really more focused on public health and welfare, but looked into investigations and did studies on, on noise and its impacts. Um, however, that was really in the 70s and in 1981, they basically decided that noise issues were better handled at a state and local level. And so that office was shut down. So it is really now more at the local governmental levels that um, that we would have any sort of impact on this. Um, I did mention earlier the National Park Service also has this Natural Sounds and Night Skies division, which sounds amazing. Um, so not only noise pollution, but they also look at light pollution. So they kind of collect all this baseline data for ambient sounds, night sky quality, um, and they look at impacts, they look at solutions and ways to kind of reduce and, and mitigate the effects of both anthropogenic noise and excessive light around our natural areas. So that's an organization that you can look to for some information about things like that as well. But the good news with all of this is that unlike some of the other issues that we've talked about and will talk about, so thinking about things like deforestation and climate change, other types of ha habitat degradation, um, on some level, wildlife actually seems to recover well when noise pollution is reduced or removed. So we've had an opportunity recently to see a little bit of what that looks like. It's unfortunate circumstances, but with our, our lockdown in 2020, um, we did get to kind of see how species would respond to a quieter world. Um, and there has been some evidence coming out and probably will continue to come out here in the near, near future about what that looks like. So going back to our bird species, there was a study on white-crowned sparrows in the San Francisco Bay Area that they've been recording those sounds since the 1970s. So they had a really good database to listen back to. And during the pandemic, um, they reverted back to their lower amplitude songs during lockdown. So Casey mentioned, you know, remembering during lockdown that, you know, people would comment on how the birds, like, are they singing louder? Um, and actually the opposite was true. They were singing quieter. <laughs> Again, they're normally singing louder. We just don't perceive it as louder because of all of the background sound that's going on. But in listening back to, to previous recordings and what they recorded over the pandemic, they were able to, to show that they they went back to, to singing their, their lower amplitude songs that the lady white crowned sparrows would find more attractive. So, um, so it's cool to see that they can do that. And this isn't obviously going to be 100% true for everything. Obviously, if we've got noise pollution that has caused hearing loss for a species, that's right. not going to revert back to normal. Um, but, but some of these, you know, behaviors and stressful conditions are things that these, these animals are, would hopefully be able to recover from. So as we know better, and as we learn more, can figure out how to do things better. So it doesn't mean we stop shipping 
things. Um, it means that we figure out how to have quieter, more efficient propellers on ships. That means maybe uh, we can change the way that we're doing these seismic surveys for oil and gas uh, reducing our dependence on those would I'll also doing be less of them. That would be great <laughs> for sure. Um, but again, you know, at least in, in the interim, and as we're hopefully working towards that, you know, people are looking into ways that we can do this more quietly. You know, it also might mean thinking about our urban planning and our road development, and you know how just knowing more about how these sounds can have an impact on wildlife we can be more thoughtful about where we place things, right? And where we're preserving land as well. So maybe a nature preserve right next to a rail yard isn't the ideal circumstance. I'm not going to say it's bad to, to have that, that um, natural area preserved still, but maybe we could, you know, think about those things a little more. Um, and, you know, and there are people and organizations that are working, working on that too. So I think for me, what I took from all of this was, first of all, it it was just fascinating to me, some of the things that um, animals are able to do and the adaptations that they have. But I also just think, you know, keeping this in the back of our minds, I think because we can't see it or touch it, noise pollution tends to be something that just kind of doesn't register with us and we we tend to forget about it. So being aware of it looking for it. You know, we've talked a lot about being active in our local governments and being an advocate for policy changes and things like that. So noticing when things like this are popping up where we might be able to to use our voice in this area uh, is important going forward. Yeah. And I, I think also maybe thinking about these things in relation to people as well. Like, you know, we've pointed out being an angry clownfish in a world full of boat propellers, like <laughs> that, that same sort of issue <laughs> happens to people on land. Right. And, and in communities, I'm sure this is a similar issue with things like clean water where communities who don't have as much of a political power are going to end up in the loudest, uh, mm -hmm. least auditorily clean environment maybe is what I'm looking for. But yeah, so keeping an eye on that um, is good for people too, because we don't want chronic stress for us either. My sister lives in the middle of Philadelphia on South street, um, which is a very happening place. And I know that like the sound there, there's motorcycle gangs across the street, going to a bar mm -hmm. there, there's just people out. And so I know that it causes her to lose sleep. So I imagine that there's a lot of wildlife in the area who has just like gotten out of Dodge because they're not able to, to do all their functions. So yeah, thinking about things like that, I learned a lot during this episode because I hadn't thought about species like fish Yep, and it's good to know that there's certain species that can bounce back. It seems like this is more of a response to a stimulus rather mm -hmm. than maybe a like detrimental long-term generations after generations thing, but it could become that if we don't change a little bit. If we're not aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back in just a moment with your action for the week. Right. Welcome back, everybody. We've got your action for this week. And this one's a, a simple one, but 
I really like it and I hope you'll participate and and share with us. So all I'm asking of you this week is to be aware of your soundscape. So during some of your outdoor time that you're hopefully going to get this week, pick your favorite nature spot and just take a couple of minutes to just sit and listen. Close your eyes if you need to. What sounds are you hearing right now? I'm hearing my dog drinking water in the background. So I apologize <laughs> if, you can, if you can hear that as well. But just take a minute to see what you what you can hear. What sounds are you hearing that are natural? What sounds are you hearing that are anthropogenic? Because you're pretty lucky if you can sit for a couple of minutes and, and not hear any human-caused sounds. But just pay attention to what you're listening to. And we want to hear it. Share, your, share some of your soundscapes with us. So take a moment while you're enjoying the outdoor time to take a recording for us, tag it on, so tag us on social media and let us, let us hear what you hear around you. Oh yeah. Especially if you're in some place cool. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everyone do it, but if you can go to the beach and record some ocean waves for us, we would love that. Happy. Yeah. We'll do it too. So we'll, we'll share our sounds over the week and and let you know what our local area is. I'm going to try and get to a park. That's my goal is to get out to um, slightly more naturalistic area. It's not my backyard. Hopefully we'll get some relaxing ones for you. So we won't all be angry clownfish, angry clownfish, (laughs) my new favorite. Yes. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Once again, if you made it this part of the episode, thanks for being dedicated. And if you get a chance, if you haven't yet, leave us a review or rating, send us an email. We might read it on air. Who knows? And uh, we appreciate you guys listening. Stay safe and we'll, well, you'll hear us next week. <laughs>